Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And before we get going, if you happen to be coming to the Royal Albert Hall tomorrow, Thursday, ahead of that, go to our Instagram page this morning where we've got lots of polls running that we'd like you to vote in ahead of tomorrow night. And we will be having other events, won't we, next year? Absolutely. Which will start publishing live events people come to. They seem to be Still selling out in about six, seven minutes, but we promised to do more work and get out more around and the country. And we have promised we will go to Wales at we, some point, so we, we have to, to do that. That is a promise. Now, as for today, we're going to talk Israel-Palestine. Lots to talk about on that. We're going to talk Rishi Sunak mm-hmm. and his rather tricky week, COVID inquiry, and now the Rwanda votes. Uh, we're going to talk Ukraine. I know you're very interested in this Polish truck blockade, but also there's on the bigger picture... Can the Americans and can the European Union keep funding uh, the Ukrainian effort? And then as COP limps to what looks like a pretty unsatisfactory conclusion, Saudi Arabia and Putin. Very good. So where do you want to start? Should we start with Israel? Yeah, let's start with Israel. So what have you, I mean, we're now, I guess, two months in. Is your mind beginning to shift? Are you changing your views? I mean, how are you thinking about it now compared to how you were thinking about it a couple of months ago? I think it's very, very hard not to feel that this thing is just beyond anything that we imagined. We said, right, if you remember day one, we said this is going to be unimaginably horrible. Um, I was at an event last night, and I I won't name her, but there was a very well-known war correspondent who was there who said that of all the wars, this has felt like the worst. And I I think that through right through the whole thing, I've had this sense that the Israelis have decided they're not really explaining the strategy. They're just doing the strategy. And what you're seeing is is a a level of of horror, I think, now, the normalization of which is, is quite frightening. Somebody actually pointed out last week that one of our listeners said, you know, they find it incredible that we didn't even talk about the Middle East last week. Now, it's true, you know, lots of other things that we were talking about, but I wonder if that's even within the context of this discussion, whether the normalization of the horror is such that and, we and, just... And, and, and one of the problems is that it's very difficult to report on. Um, Israel appears at the moment not to be allowing international journalists into Gaza. A lot of journalists are being killed. Which means that it's very difficult to get reporting out. 
There was a very interesting analysis actually on the BBC, and we, we can share the clip with people with an ex uh, US defense specialist who said that on single days, Israel was dropping more bombs than in Afghanistan an entire year. And that a lot of the bombs being dropped to 2,000 pound bombs, which are really, really big things. Now, they're laser guided, so they hit the precise target that the Israeli military wanted to hit, but the effect on the surrounding area is enormous. And he's really struggling to understand how all this works. So, um, in order to kill a mid level Hamas commander, it appears as though they killed about 126 people. 126 civilians to get one mid-level commander. So to take it from their perspective, they think they know where the Hamas commander is. They target him and take him out, but in so doing are taking out dozens of other people, many of whom will presumably have nothing to do with Hamas. Yeah, and it, it does. I mean, again, because of the controversies around the attack on the hospital and because Hamas is clearly a terrorist organization that can be incredibly dishonest and devious when it wants to be. There's been a real tendency to hold back on taking their word for things. But the New York Times and others, I think, are now pretty confident of the numbers, which are pushing well into 15,000 people, and that the majority of those killed at the moment are women and children. And you can see in the aerial imagery what northern Gaza looks like. So this is a a very small strip of land, Gaza, with about 2.3 million people. And of those, the vast majority have now been displaced from their houses, 80-90%. Several, some, many of them several times. Many of them several times. The, the, I saw an interview on Al Jazeera. Somebody said she was, she was weeping. She said she was being moved for the fourth time, following instructions, following the social media campaigns from the Israelis, and she was moving. And the place that they're being told to move to now is literally the size of Heathrow Airport. A lot of the concentration now is a, a tiny strip along the Egyptian border where there have been some very clear statements from the humanitarian agencies saying there's basically no water, there's no toilets. Uh, the World Food Programme is saying that many people are not managing to eat even once a day. And now the fighting is moving to Khan Yunus, which is the, the population center in the south, Gaza City having been comprehensively bombed. And then we go back to your question, what's the what's the objective here? And there are different reasons given by the IDF at different times for what they're doing. So one of those is that this is designed to get the hostages returned. That's very unclear for me. I don't think any hostage negotiator or hostage specialist that I'm aware of thinks that killing uh, over 10,000 people is the way to get hostages returned. I mean, hostage release is a specialist thing normally done by special forces and people who've got real skills in hostage release. Yeah. And it's it's also raises a moral question, ethical question, because if what you're doing is suggesting, I don't know whether this is what they're suggesting, but it sounds a little bit like you're suggesting that you're just going to keep killing lots of women and children until the hostage is released. There's a basic principle, which is very fundamental in the way that we think about law, which is that you don't kill innocent people to force the hand of the guilty party. The other thing I, I was interested, keen to talk about was the, the issues of the settlements. Don McIntyre, who you may know, who was a journalist back in my day, we were political correspondents together, and he was Middle East correspondent for The Independent for years, and, and he's 
he's now he's out there. He's the guy who wrote this book, Gaza, which I mentioned a few weeks ago. And he had a piece in the New European this week, which really I thought I knew a little bit about the the settlement issue. But he 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 spent he's he's out there now and he's spending time out there. He's in the West Bank. And he was telling the story of of how this has just been steadily happening well before October the 7th. And that bit by bit, he, he reported from this village called Zanuta, where they've literally everybody has now moved out, everybody. And then the settlers who moved them out are now onto the next place. And he, he, was, he quoted this guy, a, a shepherd, who talked about these herding outposts. And you can see this. It's, like, it's almost like a sort of piecemeal battle that's going on and including this detail and don don does love his um his sort of colorful details but where the sheep the israeli sheep have been fighting the palestinian sheep for land and the palestinians have now taken their sheep to bring them inside and he says as a result of that normally the sheep would be grazing for 11 months of the year and only need proper food one month a year they're now having to feed them for six months of the year, which means that it's utterly unviable. So their business is being destroyed, their homes are being destroyed, etc. And this is all happening. Most of this is happening, and you've talked before about the sort of delineation of the West Bank in Area C, which is 63% of the West Bank. And that's where the two-state solution would be yeah, focused. Yeah, the core of the Palestinian state. And it, yeah. it's just, it's impossible to see how this now happens. And if you if you tie what Don's writing in the paper to his book, which obviously was published a few years ago, and he, this tracks the story of this, it's kind of been going on step by step by step by step. And he's very critical of the international community, of the Palestinian leadership, and of the Israelis for the fact that we've just sort of allowed this to happen. I remember as a foreign office minister, so I, I, and, and a, a DFID minister, I was the DFID minister responsible for Israel-Palestine. And I'm sure like you and like probably most ministers before and after me, I was taken by our diplomats up onto a hill and shown these settlements and made firm statements against the settlements and then came back and had a very tetchy conversation with the Israeli ambassador. And I, I remember thinking at the time how utterly muddled and confused the international policy was. On the one hand, we were making these uh, statement about settlements, we were making statements about the occupied Palestinian territories. But on the other hand, we were very, very worried, it felt uh, politically, about in any way offending Israel. And so we were, I almost thought, pretending that the Netanyahu government was agreeing with us mm. and being in favor of a two-state solution and that we all agreed this was the occupied Palestinian territories, when of course they weren't. In fact, he doesn't believe in a two-state solution. And He's only once even begun to suggest he, he was in favor. And he'd say, he would probably say to your face, two-state solution, blah, obviously, yes. And then meanwhile, back in Israel, he's doing deals with this Smotrich and the Ben Gavirs who are funding money and guns to the settlers. Um, now, meanwhile, on the other side, and muddling this uh, even more, is another really big story that's been happening over the last 10 days, which has dominated the US media, but also slightly the British media, is the heads of the University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, and MIT, who in a big public testimony were asked whether calling for genocide against mm. Jews were harassment, completely failed to answer. They kept uh, waffling on the about context, you know, context specific. Yeah. There again, 
a real sign of the way in which obviously this is spreading into so many other areas of political life, polarizing particularly US public opinion almost more than anywhere. Uh, did you watch that? I mean, I thought it I was, did watch it, I thought yeah. it was extraordinary that they were so bad at handling public questioning when they would have been trained. I mean, one of them had resigned. Well, yeah, Liz McGill, University of Pennsylvania, is now gone, partly triggered by a donor who I think was talking about holding back $150 million uh, gift to the university. But more fundamentally, if you're asked whether genocide, kind of genocide harassment, you have to say, yes, genocide is completely wrong. And I, it was very odd that they couldn't do that, even if you then move on to say, however, within our campus, we question whether that was what was happening. It was a very, very odd, but very, you know, a moment which for the Jewish community in the US and in Europe is just confirming the sense of anti-Semitism. So there are two narratives happening at the same time. There is the horror of what is happening on the ground in Gaza, the bombs being dropped by the IDF. And on the other hand, a lot of the conversation on social media is about Jewish communities being very, very concerned by what they see as a rising tide of anti-Semitism. And on the same side, many of my friends who uh, are concerned about the Palestinian cause are also reaching out to these American universities, thinking that the universities are not giving enough space to people uh, mm. on the pro-Palestinian side. We're back to the fundamental problem, which is that it, it appears to be, even in places where you expect the leaders of those organizers, the universities, to be able to manage these difficult debates, where the polarization is such that they appear incapable of so doing. Now, I've, I've heard a lot in recent years about this kind of whole woke thing on American campuses. And I've always assumed a bit like, because I think the woke debate is so absurd on so many levels. But when you see that level of reluctance to say something which you know you have a constituency in your university that's going to find difficult to hear, so you can't say it, it's sort of, it's a bit scary. It is very scary. And it's also interesting that, I mean, you and I instinctively know that sometimes giving a blunt, clear answer is essential. That oddly, um, politicians are often accused of avoiding questions. But I don't think any politician asked whether genocide was a bad thing would waffle. I also think that, that you, you talk about woke on campuses. One of the things making it complicated is that there's a big social justice movement that is identifying Jews as being white and Palestinians mm. uh, as being black adjacent. So there's a lot of a lot of energy from social justice movement taking place. Very strange, given that obviously, you know, Jews and Arabs are very, very closely related ethnically. I, I think the other thing maybe just to finish on before we move on to Rwanda is your thoughts on the British politics of this. So there was a resolution in the UN, which was supported by Russia, China, and critically France. So that's three out of the five security members calling for a ceasefire and the release of the hostages. And you would have thought that's a pretty uncontroversial thing, ceasefire release of hostages. But the US voted against and Britain abstained. And Britain abstained partly because going back to my time in the foreign office, I get joking about this, this is ridiculous idea that you find out what the US are doing and do a little bit less. Which Theresa May did not like. Did not, but it is literally a convention in the British Foreign Service that if the Americans vote against, the UK abstains. However, it was broken once and it was broken in 2009 where there was another war in Gaza. And that led eventually to a ceasefire. Absolutely. That was a war in Gaza in which uh, during that war, 14 Israelis were killed and between 1,100 and 1,400 Palestinians were killed. The US wanted to vote against the resolution. Britain was going to abstain. And at the very last minute overnight, Gordon Brown's government changed their position. 
decided to vote in favor and the US changed its position and abstained. Now, people would say 2009 is a bit different. Maybe Israel in that situation was actually looking for a way out in a way that they're not now. US politics was different. But it does show that it can be done. And I would have thought that Keir Starmer and David Lammy need to now get out ahead of this and be calling clearly for a ceasefire. Because if they wait until Biden. Sunak and Biden change their minds, it's too late, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I do have sympathy for the Labour's position in that it's, it strikes me as odd that here we are, we've, we're going to talk about Rishi Sunak in the context of COVID and of Rwanda. And the British government's position on Israel-Gaza is coming under very little scrutiny, whereas the opposition's is coming under massive attack. Lots of MPs say they're getting literally thousands of emails and messages and so forth. Just to go back to the, the point of 2009, because Tom Fletcher, who we both know, who worked for us and worked for Cameron and worked for Gordon and is has, has been an ambassador. And he had a very, very interesting thread on social media the other day. And he kind of saying what you're saying. I'll just go through it briefly. One, it is time for the UK to get off the fence and say unequivocally, all violence against all civilians must stop. Two, this is your point. People say UN resolutions are powerless, but we had a ceasefire within a week of Security Council Resolution 1860-2009. The horror of civilian attacks by Hamas and Israeli cabinet are of a different scale. But the fundamentals are the same. We must protect civilians in Israel and Palestine. Stop the bloodshed drowning the two-state solution, which is what's happening. And then the key point is this. Prime ministers all face a choice on the Middle East. Either sit it out hoping the US put meaningful pressure on the closest ally or go for bold diplomacy aligned with UK interests and values or take a punt on somehow influencing Netanyahu through private persuasion. Now, there's no doubt, I've been talking to some of Joe Biden's people, their approach has been absolute public support for Israel. And in the meantime, we try and influence the Israelis privately. And this, this and is just, just this is the great cliche of diplomacy. I mean, you yeah. would have heard it again and again. We were always exactly. told when I was a young diplomat, we, you know, we're, we're quiet in public and then privately. We're pushing we, them. We push them. And up. I think they are pushing them. However, the effect of that pushing does not seem very, very yeah, strong. The question is, how's it going? That's pushing exactly. Again. And, and yeah. is, does Netanyahu listen more or less to Biden or to Smotrich, Ben Gavir and these guys? And I, I assume, I mean, not to be unfair, but I assume that your close friend Tony Blair is is also in this bind. He presumably thinks that what he's doing is putting on private pressure Absolutely. and not making public statements. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's exactly what he's trying yeah. to do. And, I think, and, and, and that is the classic bind, as you say. But I think that it's, it's very interesting for, with, with Tom's point, because Tom's been both as an ambassador and as an advisor right in there. And I think he essentially is saying that the private persuasion bit, so far as any British influence is concerned, is having zero effect, and a public statement might. I, I think that's what, what, what he's saying. Good. Okay. Well, I mean, we, we will keep following it, and it, it remains an astonishingly horrible human tragedy, both the horror of what Hamas did to Israelis and those 1,400 people who were killed, and the nearly 15,000 who've now been killed in Gaza. But it's a very different conflict from ones we've seen in the past because the political context, social media particularly, new types of social movement mean that it's charged and internationalized in a way that you can't begin to imagine. Mm -hmm. And also, it's like, you know, I, the other one I feel a little bit sorry for is Guterres, 
because there is, there's Antonio Guterres, head of the UN. Now, he is being accused by the Israelis of being anti-Semitic. Um, why? Because he, he used this 99 procedure, which essentially is, is to declare this a, a, an emergency. They're saying, well, you didn't do it for Ukraine, you didn't do it for Sudan, you didn't do it for this, you didn't do it for that. So on the one hand, he's pressure from there. On the other hand, he's under massive pressure for people right around the world saying, for God's sake, can't the UN do something? And of course, as we saw from the vote, the UN can only do something if the UN Security Council agrees, and there is no fundamental agreement there. And of course, you then, we're going to talk about Ukraine later, you've got the fact that whether it, all of these things kind of hang together, Middle East with Iran's involvement, uh, you've got Russia, Ukraine, you've got all these different kind of conflicts going on that are frankly part of a very, very big battle between those bodies that are there split out the UN, you know, democracies, autocracies and so forth. Which brings us to the news in British politics, which is very, very much dominated by two things, um, by Rishi Sunak's appearance in the COVID inquiry. But what I'd like to talk about first, which is the Tory party falling to pieces in its fight over the new bill on Rwanda and immigration. So I'd love to do a little explainer on what's actually in this bill, because I noticed when I was reading the newspapers that none of them actually bothered to really explain what the details they, of the bill they, they tell you what Mark Francois thinks about it and Bill Cash thinks about yeah. it and Ian Duncan Smith thinks about it, but they don't tell you what's in it. It's amazingly difficult to get to that. Anyway, but give us a sense of what you think of the politics before I get onto the substance of the bill. Well, I was trying to tot up. You've talked before about all these different factions. I've been trying to tot up all the different factions now. So apparently Rishi Sunak this morning is having breakfast with a group called the New Conservatives. This is the sort of Danny Kruger, Miriam Cates. Lee of, Anderson. Oh, is he part of them? Yeah, well? I yeah, thought, yeah. I, but is he not part of the Northern Research Group? <laughs> He's also part of the Northern Research Group. So you've got, you've got so, One Nation Caucus, which is, I guess, your sort of yeah, Tory party. Yeah, you've yeah. got the European Research Group, which I thought was going to die with Brexit yeah. having and been that's, done. That's Marc Francois, ERG. And Bill yeah. Cash and that lot. You've yeah. got the New Conservatives. You've got the Common Sense Group, which has got nothing to do with Estimate of A being the Minister for Common Sense. You've got the Conservative and the Growth Group. Common Sense Group is, uh, John is, Hayes. is, is real sort of a much, much older, very senior backbenchers. Sir Edward Lee, Sir John Hayes. These, oh, blah, blah, these are these blah, are real. Blah. These are these are guys who've been on the sort of Eurosceptic, ultra conservative side for a very long time. And then you've got the you've got the Conservative Growth Group, which is the sort of list trust mob. That's that's just half a dozen of the factions. Yeah, and that's now, before, I, you, before you got on, before you got onto the Cornerstone Group. That's another that's another, another key, one. key player. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're recording this on Tuesday ahead of the vote, and we're still trying to work our way through. And this, this is the vote on the on the yeah. the, the main second reading of the bill. And, and one of the big questions that's been running is whether these groups are going to vote with Labour to bring down the bill, which is a sort of classic move. So they would be doing it for totally different reasons to Labour. Labour would be voting it down, presumably because uh, they think it maybe is inhumane or illegal to be sending people to Rwanda. The Tory right will be voting it down because they think it's not tough enough. right? And, and this is obviously what we had again and again in Brexit, which is the Tory right voting with Labour to destroy Theresa May's compromise deals on Brexit. Says um, he looking at me yeah, accusingly. Exactly, exactly. Says looking at me. Um, it's all listen, my fault. So, so just quickly on these groups, because I, I obviously know these groups quite well. They're not mutually exclusive. Now, some of them, like the ERG, were these incredibly well-organized whipped groups. And under Marc Francois and Steve Baker, they became really important during the Brexit votes because they actually ran their own whipping operations. They had serious money. 
They had lines to take. They briefed the press. They were also basically a party within the party. Mm. The Northern Research Group is run by a friend of mine called John Stevenson, who is the MP for Carlisle um, and is very much in the center of the party and is largely making arguments for more investment in Northern England. The Common Sense Group, on the other hand, is much more a cultural group. It's much more about a sort of particular vision of conservatism. And the One Nation Group, I mean, is a bit of a nonsense. I mean, I certainly found trying to use the One Nation Group and the way that the RG was used, it completely fell to pieces. We had five different candidates in the leadership. Nobody was prepared to take a single position on Brexit. So journalists trying to simplify the situation, I yeah. think, are now talking about the five families as a joke about Godfather. But basically, what you're going to, it's going to so come So is Rishi Sunak Tony Soprano? Exactly. It's not working, yeah, is so, it? Exactly. <laughs> so um, it, basically, it's going to come down to, are a few grumpy right-wing conservatives whipped up by Suella Bravman and Robert Jenrick? Now, uh, Rory, before yeah. we go on, yeah. I'm really confused. How is Robert Jenrick, who strikes me of the many unimpressive politicians in the current conservative benches as one of the most unimpressive in terms of, I just, I see nothing there. Am I, am I missing something? I, I don't think you're missing something. And I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I am feeling more loyal towards Rishi Sunak on this. So Robert Jenrick was the immigration minister. He sat in all those cabinet discussions. He knows in detail why it is impossible to do what he wants to do. He understands that it would be in contravention of the Refugee Convention of Article 13 of the ECHR, blah, 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 blah. You know, he's lucky in some sense to be in the government because he had a big scandal to do with mm, um, Richard Desmond and a property deal. And he's now come out and given an interview where he says, we're not sent to parliament to be concerned about our reputations on the gilded international circuit, which is basically a way of saying, Bring Members of Parliament shouldn't care about international law. Yeah. yeah. So it's very odd. He's not a Secretary of State. He's not in charge of a department. He's a junior minister. And I see this, as when I sound like an old Tory, as deeply, deeply disloyal, as well as being horrified by the position he's taking. He's all, isn't he also, like, was, I presume, or maybe still is, but sort of close friend of Sunak's? Yeah. So Robert Jenrick was one of these people who, like Rishi Sunak and Ollie Dowden, came out very early for Boris Johnson. They were the young Turks of the 2015 intake whose endorsement to Boris Johnson was very important. So I never quite forgave the trio of them for doing that. But I think it's a sign of the way in which so many people in parliament are behaving at the moment. I mean, they are extraordinary about stabbing each other in the back. I mean, regardless of the rights or wrongs of the issue, there's a difference between quietly stepping down and going out on all the Sunday shows trashing the Prime Minister. And also, he's got this sort of smugness that, I mean, I, I just don't know where it comes from, because the only time I've ever actually sort of met him properly was, I think it was the 2019 election, and we were on a panel together or something, and I can just remember think, being overwhelmingly unimpressed by he had no presence he had no i had no sense of him having a kind of world view he was just like a sort of talking robot and he's now become this sort of i could even see that he sort of styled himself if you saw when he was walking down the street the other day with his sort of he had a sort of blue jumper on and jeans and i could tell he sort of said to his wife or whoever's advising him i think i need to look a bit sort of less stuffy than normal i think i'll put on put on a jumper and jeans and walk, he sort of walked down the street sort of forcing himself with the cameras to you could see in his head he's thinking i must walk normally i must walk normally <laughs> the, the problem the problem i mean i i 
So I know Robert Jenrick reasonably well, and I knew him before he was an MP. He, he entertained me when he was the chairman of his local association when I was speaking in his constituency before the election. Oh, so he's, has he sort of come up through that route? It, yeah. Through he, the party, he, as it were. So he, he, he'd been active in his local party politics, um, although he, did, he had a job before, before Parliament too. But one of the reasons it's difficult, uh, I find, psychologically to criticise, is that he's very amiable. And actually, it's a weird thing about Suella Braverman too. I'm horrified by what she does in public, but in person, whenever you meet her, she's very sort of friendly and nice and modest. So so I feel it's it's an interesting thing. I think what Rob Jenrick's done is awful, but I equally, I know that when he's listening to this, he'll feel really hurt. You know, I I entertained Rory in my house. I've always been very nice to him. Why is he kicking me on, on air? Yeah. I've got, talking of kicking on air, I must give a... A shout out to Nick Robinson, BBC. He did an interview with Suella Bradman, which I spent most of the time saying, for God's sake, put the boot in. For God's sake, we put the boot in. And, and anyway, he was just, he sort of let her speak. And then at the end, he did this, he did this thing where he basically said, look, isn't the truth that you come on here and you're all nice and emollient, but the truth is you go around, it's all about you. You spread hate. You're vile to your boss. I mean, he really, 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 really went for it. I think she was quite taken aback. No, so I find the generic thing, very, very confusing. But I'll tell you what I find more confusing is the fact that Rishi Sunak has, I think, made a terrible mistake of making this such a massive issue. Even if they get a plane off to Rwanda, and I know they'll do the whole performative thing, but it's going to be what? A few dozen people. The figures for asylum within the whole net migration picture are minuscule. And so he's not putting the energy into tackling the things that really, well, really, well, really make this difficult. And he's putting all his capital into this. Yeah. Well, so the deal is that the uh, j just basic facts, the government wants to move people who come over, particularly people who come over in boats claiming asylum in Britain, wants to move them to Rwanda and argues that Rwanda, country in Africa with about 10 million people, is a safe third country. And it began uh, this commitment back in the spring of 2022 with Boris Johnson, tried to put people on the planes to Rwanda, was blocked by the courts. And in a final ruling of the Supreme Court in November, the Supreme Court says something quite interesting. What they said is there's no problem in theory with the idea that you can have a safe third country, right? That the point is that people need to be safe. And provided they are not at risk of death, torture, persecution, a third country is fine. The principle's fine, yeah. principle's fine. But they had significant problems in practice with Rwanda. They even said that they think Rwanda was making a good faith effort to look after people, but they said that actually the record was worrying. And the record, not least because of the deal they'd had in the past with Israel. Correct. So there'd been a deal with Israel. And in that deal, up to 2018, they the court found that people who'd been resettled by Israel and Rwanda had then been secretly shipped back to the countries from which they came. So they were at significant danger. So court said, basically, we can imagine a world in which Rwanda can be safe, but it's going to take very significant capacity building to build up the skills of their officials, make sure their asylum procedures are right, and basically make sure that you can be confident that people arrive in Rwanda, properly treated in Rwanda, and not sent back to their own homes. The government then tried to respond to this by doing two things in parallel. James Cleverley, the former Foreign Secretary, now Home Secretary, flew to Rwanda and signed a treaty. And actually, that's the good bit of the story. He signed quite a good treaty in which very complicated conversations with Rwanda. Rwanda standing up for itself, saying it wants to follow international law, it doesn't want to break the Refugee Convention, and it doesn't want to give up on its own sovereignty, agreed a series of panels and courts which would provide oversight to reassure people 
and potentially reassure the Supreme Court that people arriving around would be properly dealt with. It was also, is it right, it's the Rwandans who insisted on this point that Jenrick is particularly angry about because that's the bit that he's basically saying, well, it means that we're, we're losing sovereignty to them, essentially, because they've made an insistence about one of the factors in the in the treaty. Yeah. So Rwanda are making two big points. One is they were not prepared to accept a sort of British court making decisions over Rwandan law. What they have accepted is an appeal court, which in Rwandan law, which is a mixed court, which can include a British judge, Commonwealth judges and Rwandan judges, but they want to make sure that Rwanda is has its own sovereignty here. Mm-hmm. Right? And the second point is they want to be consistent with the Refugee Convention, European Convention on Human Rights, this kind of stuff. So they're basically worried that Britain is less concerned about international law than Rwanda. Exactly. They're very keen to say they care about international law and they're sovereign. Um, so this treaty was signed and there was a reasonable chance that you could then go back to the Supreme Court and make the legal argument in the Supreme Court that with all the package of measures that Britain's brought in, and it's and they've basically agreed that Rwandans will not be sent back to Rwanda, that other people being sent back to Rwanda will be carefully looked after, that even if they don't get asylum, they'll get permanent residence, that the UK will pay for them for five years, et cetera, et cetera. But instead of doing that, the government's done the second thing, which is much, much more controversial, which is that they've passed a law saying that Rwanda is safe. So Lord Garnier ex-Tory MP. Mm-hmm. He advises the One Nation caucus that we talked about. And he has said, this bill is nonsense. It's comparable with a ruling that all dogs are cats. <laughs> it's, so it's, it's not... Is he wrong? Um, it's, it's not quite as... You can't bad. just sort of have a treaty that says, this country is now safe and, well, and it, no court can ever challenge that. So, so the complication here is that you guys did it in 2004. So you declared in the Asylum and Immigration Act 2004, that European countries were safe. So Parliament can declare, or has in the past, declared the country safe. The difference European here, Union fellow states. The, the, yeah. The well, difference, I think that's a bit different. But nevertheless, Parliament declared yeah. they were safe. The difference here is that they're declaring Rwanda safe after the Supreme Court has ruled that they're not safe. Mm. Without any change of evidence. Right. So, so they are departing from the Supreme Court's judgment of the facts. Now, they're arguing the treaty, which I just talked about, has changed the facts. But the normal way to deal with that would be to go back to the court and make the legal argument in the court. The effect of this bill, if it passes, and it's going to pass this evening, or if it passes, it'll pass this evening, would be to say that British courts can no longer block flights generically they will be able to hear individual cases, but they won't be able to delay the entire flight while they hear individual cases. And that's the bit Jenrick says has got to go. Absolutely. And the government believes 90, 95% of these cases could be heard in a few days. But the government still wants to defend very strongly. And, and this is what's annoying Jenrick. And that this is vital to get over why the Tory right is completely wrong on this in every way. The government bill goes further than I and many lawyers would like. But at least it makes sure that if you were in a late stage pregnancy, you wouldn't be put on a plane. If you had throat cancer, you wouldn't be put on a plane. If you were under threat from the Rwandan government, you wouldn't be put on the plane. Jenrick and the right of the Tory party is basically saying that everybody should just be sent out. We yeah. don't care at all about any exceptions, any individual cases. So if you, were st- if you were still an MP, would you vote for it? I suspect I'd abstain suspect I'd abstain. Show real leadership. Yeah, exactly, that's you, right. You do what that's we a, did. A, a noble abstention. <laughs> right, but the, the the consequence of an abstention would be yeah, well, so, to so, contribute so, towards a Sunak defeat. So I think, I think the bigger issue here, though, is this whole question about which Germany is looking at as well, mm-hmm. and the Netherlands are looking at as well, 
which is dealing with these illegal crossings of the Mediterranean. So the crossings of the Channel are nothing like as horrifying and disturbing oh, as yeah. what's happening in the Mediterranean. Mediterranean, it's literally lethal. Well over 2,400 died this year alone crossing the Mediterranean. So Germany is looking very closely at this because they would like to have agreements in place like the British agreement with Rwanda. And there's a very interesting proposal, again, from my favorite group, the ESI, which is suggesting that actually Germany and France should offer to take everybody who crosses the channel back. And in return, Britain will agree, this is partly what Labour's been talking about, taking a certain number of asylum seekers from Europe every year. But also, that this will then allow Germany to use the treaty with Rwanda to move some of the people crossing the Mediterranean to Rwanda. The argument being here that what should be happening is we should be taking asylum seekers on the basis of need, thinking about how many should be accommodated, taking them from the countries themselves. Mm. That's something that we've been talking about in, in previous interviews. In fact, actually, it was something we were talking about with uh, with the ex-Belgian Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. sh shortly coming out on yeah. the meeting where he said it's ridiculous that we can't take people who are persecuted from the countries in which they're persecuted, female judges from Afghanistan, mm. rather than waiting them to cross deadly crossing the Mediterranean. So a lot is relying on this. And many European countries are very frustrated that they feel that the Conservative government was almost there with the treaty with Rwanda, but they're horrified that they've pushed so far in trying to declare the country safe through law. Yeah. I, I mean, I think they're going to struggle. Uh, even if they get the vote through, I think they're going to struggle. And, and it feels to me like the politics of this within the Conservative Party uh, have just become so vicious. I know you don't like me talking about my friendship with Alan Clark. <laughs> uh, but, you, 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 but I remember he once, he once phoning me up and saying, you're absolutely, you're home and dry for a decade. And I said, well, why, why does this? Because well, the truth is we fucking hate each other far more than we hate you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that sort of feels like that's where, where it's at. And also the sort of, the kind of the same people. I mean, Francois, Duncan Smith, Bill Cash, the same people that we saw endlessly during the Brexit debate. And this pomposity of, you know, the Star Chamber has reported and the Star Chamber has decided that there's this. I mean, they're just to, to, Just to explain to listeners, the Star Chamber is, is all this group of right-wing MPs sitting around doing a legal analysis and trying to prove that the government's bill isn't tough enough to achieve what they want on Rwanda. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, look, we haven't really covered the COVID inquiry, but uh, he's hypnotic, Sunak. Do you know one of the things that's really important in politics is the voice? And he's got this suppressed petulance all the time. And he couldn't do it with the judge or the QC. But he sort of, so I, I switched off after half an hour. I just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't stay couldn't, with it. Couldn't stay with it. Right. Well, should we take a break? Take a break. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And Rory, I think we should urge all of our listeners who have not so far done so to listen to the latest leading interview with Angela Rayner. I mean, I thought I knew Angela Rayner quite well, but sitting in that studio with her, hearing her talk about her childhood and how she's become the person that she now is was pretty amazing. 
That was unbelievable. I mean, if people do, do please listen to it. I mean, it, it's it's extraordinary. So Angela Rayner, as people who've listened to it will find out, and hopefully many more of you will listen to it, grew up in a family where her mother was one of 12. Her mother couldn't read or write. Uh, she was essentially a carer for her mother from a very, very early age. She's six. And I mean, she really grew up in the most extreme form of deprivation and poverty imaginable in Britain, left school at 16 with not a single GCSE, and is unbelievable. I mean, she's very, very bright. She's very tough. She's very thoughtful. I mean, it, it sort of left me still with this question, which I guess, you know, given that we're all told to work hard at school because it's really important for our later life, you know, what the secret of this is. And she very correctly, I think, and modestly says a lot of it is luck. She was lucky, but she's also obviously a very, very remarkable person. Mm. Yeah. I also noticed that how much more fluent she's become. There wasn't a single question that she flinched from, no. whether it's policy, whether it's personal, whether it's political. I think she could be a, a massive asset in the campaign for Labour and in government, actually. And I think it would be such an amazing aspirational message to say that you can come from a, a background that, honestly, is, is like anybody who's ever seen Shameless. It sort of feels like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that kind of dirt and, and poverty. She, and she's amazingly um, sort of frank about it. And also, hopefully, somebody who will really stand up for that section of society who've been shamefully neglected by so many different parties over time because... The sort of poorest, I don't know, half a million people in this country often don't vote, aren't courted by either the Conservative or Labour parties. So somebody speaking up for them would be hugely important. Yeah, I think Sure Start, Rory, was a very, very, yeah, she, she one made of the, a very one good, of the, very good worst case. parts of austerity. Very good case for Sure Start. She yeah. definitely did. And how it transformed her ability to, well, that was extraordinary. She said she was never hugged once by her mother and she had to be taught by Sure Start to hug her own children. Mm. So, Ukraine, where do you want to start? Well, I think the first thing is, of course, the obvious, which is we're neglecting Ukraine because we're talking a lot about Israel-Gaza. And Putin is feeling pretty pleased with himself. He's now attempting assaults along the entire front line, this massive front line between Russia and Ukraine. He's got 350,000 soldiers mobilized. And Ukraine was supposed to break through, as we've said, in a counteroffensive this year. It didn't. Instead, it feels very much like I don't know, almost like the First World War, trench, trenches, mm. mines. There was a lot of talk about using tens of thousands of small drones to try to break through, but it, it really does seem stuck. And of course, Ukraine is deeply dependent on money coming in, particularly money from the US, which provides 10 times as much as the nearest, next nearest country. And there's more than $50 billion supposed to be coming from Biden that's frozen. But... The US population is increasingly skeptical, particularly Republican voters, you know, overwhelming majority of Republican voters think too much money is going to Ukraine now. Trump clearly signaling that if he comes in, he's going to give up on supporting Ukraine entirely. So Putin's hanging on for that. Interesting that Zelensky went to Millet's inauguration and made a big, big show of support. I don't know whether that was sort of saying, I need the populist right as well. Very interesting, isn't it? You would have mm. thought of all your priorities. I mean, Argentina is not a huge economy. Millet is a pretty controversial man. He's the, the man we've been talking about the last three, three weeks with a, with a wig and cloned dogs and who calls the Pope a jackass. He had, um, on the, the Argentine sash that the president wears, he had the, do the five dogs <laughs> pictures put onto the sash. Um, and they're actually, because they're cloned, they're actually one dog. I mean, they're like Dolly the sheep. 
Oh, are they all the same? Yeah, yeah. They're oh, all, right. They're all one okay, dog. but yeah. he, knows, he, he knows which is different. Yeah, yeah. But I, I thought that was interesting that he, he he went there. He's going to see Biden. Biden really is holding out on very, very firm positions at some considerable cost to himself politically, both on Israel. One of the people I talked to in Biden's team said that, you know, you've got to understand he really believes this. Um, he's as determined as, as Netanyahu is that Hamas have to be defeated. But he's, so he's paying a price on that politically. And I think on Ukraine, as you say, because the, the, the Republican right has become very, very iffy about the money. So there's there he is on that. And then you've got you've also been looking at this situation with, with Poland and, and Ukraine and this, this blockade. Yeah. So since November the 6th, there have been these big blockades done by Polish truck drivers on the Ukrainian border. And now it's happening with Slovakian and Hungarian truck drivers joining. So there are 2,950 trucks stuck on the Ukrainian border and about 650 Slovakian, 750 Hungary. This is a very big problem. I mean, some of those trucks have been sitting there for many, many weeks. And why are they there? They're there because at the beginning of the war, the EU said that Ukrainian drivers could come into Europe without having to have a special permit. So they don't have to abide by European working time directives or any of the rules that other truck drivers have to abide by. And basically, they're undercutting Polish truck drivers. And was that about getting grain out or was it was it just to help getting, Ukraine? Getting, getting, it was about two things. I think it's about um, getting things in and out and also helping the Ukrainian economy. And this is significant, the Ukrainian economy. These delays at the border have probably knocked 1% off Ukraine's GDP at a time when it's already in the most horrible economic turmoil. So it seems mad. On the other hand, to pay credit to the Poles, they were the first country to open their arms. They took in million, over a million Ukrainian refugees. They were the first country to back Ukraine. But it's becoming a big, big issue because um, lots of Polish truck drivers feel that their incomes and their jobs and their livelihoods are under threat and nobody's standing up for them. It's very resolvable. Either you could return to a permitting situation, which mm -hmm. is probably too complicated, but you could certainly provide compensation for the Polish Czech, Slovakian, Hungarian truck drivers. And, and Hungary, of course, there you've got Orban. He's the one who seems to be foremost in trying to block the 50 billion euros that the European Union is set to contribute towards Ukraine, almost using it as a pawn in this game where the European Union are blocking funding to him because of some of his breaches of rule of law provisions. Absolutely. And this also leads into a much, much bigger question, which is the question about European Union accession. So Ukraine is now a Moldova lined up to be candidate states for the EU. And that's a very big issue for the EU because the people who support it see it as absolutely critical for defending Ukraine and for the future geosecurity of Europe. But caught up in this are also the Balkan countries, Serbia, Kosovo, who are also waiting for accession Albania. to the EU. Bosnia, Bosnia, Albania, Albania, yeah. Albania, Albania, yeah. <laughs> all of which are at different stages. Now, Orban is currently blocking almost all of these things, and he's really whipping up in blocking North Macedonia and Kosovo the idea that these are corrupt countries, and a lot of the far right in European elections are going to pretty soon get onto this. So here is a proposal to solve this issue, which we're going to try to push through the European capitals. Are we? Yeah, yeah. Okay. These countries should all be allowed to come into the single market. So uh, the single market is joining Europe in its freedoms. So that allows freedom of trade, particularly important, freedom of movement of people, puts you into the economic integration with Europe, but it doesn't bring you into the political institutions. You don't get involved in conversations about a European parliament, commission, 
you don't get involved in conversation about a, a joint European army. It's a position that Norway's in, not in the European Union, but in the single market. And it actually also allows you to make trade deals around the world. So it's a very, very good position to be in, in terms of accessing this enormous market. The only thing that made it controversial in Britain is that it allows the European Union immigration, free movement of people back and forth. But, I, but you see, I think that's where the hard, you say this would be sort of a way of countering the hard right. I think they would take that as a pretty big campaign issue for them. You know, what we're bringing all these Albanians and Moldovans and Georgians in to you, our market. You, you, mean, can, you, you mean across Europe? Yeah. I so can, not, not just in Britain? Yeah. So I can see I can see it being politically quite difficult. Yeah. But I like the big bold I like the boldness big, of it. Big bold, thing. big bold idea. Big bold idea. Thank Absolutely, you. Yeah. So given the four freedoms, freedom movement of people and all this stuff, bring them in single market, same way that Norway did. Make sure they meet the single market rules, and that way you can offer a deal that works for Ukraine, works for Moldova, but also works for. So Albania you just sort of bypass all the normal negotiations before entering into the single market. No, no, you need the normal single market negotiations, but that is an easier path to go on than full EU membership. And it and it will keep the momentum going, keep those countries engaged, achieve some of the geostrategic objectives, and then park for later the question of full membership. Because I think if you push for full membership now, the far right in Europe will derail everything mm. and these countries will end up And as part of this restless politics diplomatic initiative, would the United Kingdom be invited to do the same <laughs> at well, the same time? There we are. It's a very interesting thing. I mean, if the, if the number of countries in the single market outside the European Union grows from Norway to quite a large number, then there's a very natural place for a country like the United Kingdom to redock. Mm, very good. Very good. Um, just on, on the, the American politics of this, um, a poll asking people whether they support what uh, the, the the financial commitment america is making on ukraine 48% think america is spending too much 27% about right 11% not enough republicans 65% too much 52% of independents too much 32% of democrats too much so it's become a sort of left right thing which again is is not going to help the democrats keep trump at bay now, sort of, you're sticking a little bit with with Putin. He had a rare trip out outside of Russia, went to Saudi and the Emirates. Um, wasn't arrested for his alleged war crimes because they're not signatories to the International Criminal Court. But Correct. it's pretty controversial. So, Mohammed bin Zayed, who's the the dominant figure in UAE, uh, referred to him as my dear friend. President Putin gave him a twenty one gun salute. I mean, it, it's it's pretty extreme. Mm. And Mohammed bin Salman, and bin Salman who's, yeah, who's the, the effective ruler of Saudi Arabia. He saw Putin when there was talk that at the same time he should have been seeing Sunak here, which Ian Duncan Smith, that great diplomat, said was a snub. Well, it's, it's true that actually Mohammed bin Salman's foreign trips are notoriously unreliable. He keeps saying he's going to get on a plane to Britain and then he reschedules about every two weeks. He was all supposed to be flying to Moscow. One of the reasons that Putin went there is that he cancelled his trip to Moscow right. at last minute. He also cancelled his trip to the Jordanian crown prince's wedding where he was supposed to turn up. So I think Hamad bin Salman obviously doesn't quite like leaving Saudi Arabia. And meanwhile, COP, the conference of the parties trying to save the planet, the future of the planet, it seems that Saudi, to a lesser extent Russia, China, but certainly Saudi, appear to get a lot of the blame for making a deal at the moment look like it's impossible because they won't agree to phasing out it's fossil fuels. Instead of phasing, phasing down, yeah. Yeah, and of course we got that signal, didn't we, from the president uh, of the COP from UAE that he was against the, the phasing out language. Well, the, I mean, these countries, their entire economies 
are dependent on fossil fuels. I think sort of 80, 90% of their revenue come from fossil fuels. But, so. So, so why why did, when we talked to Cristiano Figueres, for example, she seemed to think this was all going to be fine and it would lead to some sort of conclusion, but they're all now very, very depressed. I was wondering as well whether we keep saying sports and politics shouldn't mix, but you've got this situation now where the Saudis are going to be hosting the World Cup at a time when they appear to be <laughs> making moves that suggest the world might not be here that Can you long. just tell me, apparently they were the only ones to bid. How on earth is it possible that they're the only ones to bid? Why does nobody want to host the World Cup? Well, you've got a situation at the moment with regard to the Commonwealth Games where there are no bids. They've all pulled out. Because uh, these things are too expensive and complicated. Well, cost, buggeration. I don't know. I think there's. Uh, I think that where certainly when we were going for London 2012 you were initially reluctant weren't you we, exactly because we, yeah. we just did this wonderful interview on leading with Seb Coe we should tell that. people about yeah. it we've had lots of interviews we've done so we've done Angela Rayner out this week we've got Tim Peake coming out soon Very good. Seb Coe yep. and Guy Verhofstadt I've got to say I thought he was brilliant and he is so <laughs> the, good the, the, the he's going to get up he's going to get up a lot of the right doses the, the, the Belgian Prime Minister yes yeah. yes that's exactly right the, the, the more, more my end of the listeners may, may get more wound up so just to finish then, Putin's now announced that, as, as we imagine that he's running in the election so he's do you think he'll win? well he's almost certain not just to win but to be in office now till 2030 he's going to be longer than Stalin yep longer than anyone since I think Catherine the Great or something came in in 1999 so it's it's a long old period. Thirty one years at the helm is a is a long old period. That was a sort of I, I was my first posting as a diplomat was in Indonesia where Suharto had done thirty two years. But that's really getting towards the sort of that, that's that's the big big authoritarian ruler. Thirty sorry, years. I, I, I watched the um, the announcement and he did it the same as they did it the last time where he's at an event. And somebody, a member of the public asks, you know, will you be just thinking about standing again in the next election? And he, he sort of gives the impression he's being dragged, kicking, he's going, oh, God, if I have to do he it says again. He says, yes, I thought I wasn't going to do it. I but thought, now but I think now the state of the world and so forth. And and then they had a they had a, a, sold, a few soldiers there and the mother of somebody who'd been killed in Ukraine. I mean, the staging. And I, I don't know, do people, do Russian people look at it and just think, well, there's nothing we can do about it and move on? Well, he's got, it looks like reasonably reliable independent polls that he's got nearly 58% support. And I think it's a more extreme version of what we're seeing with Erdogan in Turkey, which is that there is a section of Russian and Turkish societies that are never going to vote for these men. More liberal, more progressive people are horrified by them, but they don't care about that section of society. Mm. They have a base that they're going to mobilize and and that base will keep voting for yeah, them. Yeah, and, and most of his serious opponents are either dead or in jail. We mentioned Erdogan there. What do you think of this sort of David Cameron, Hamza Yusuf spat? So just to remind people, what happened is that Hamza Yusuf had a bilateral uh, with Erdogan. And at COP. At COP. And uh, the UK government wasn't informed and UK diplomats were not at the meeting. So I guess... There is a principle, which is that if you're not an independent country, you're a devolved administration, you don't conduct independent foreign relations, and that it's very important. It's not just important, actually, for Hamza Yusuf. It, that's what Priti Patel was forced, was sacked from the cabinet for doing, which is having a meeting as the cabinet minister without officials. Think, look, you've been to these summits. If, you, if you're there, like, let's say, let's take the personalities out of it. Say you're Sadiq Khan. 
say you're Mark Drakeford, say you're a Northern Ireland politician, and you happen to go to COP because you're interested in the environment. If you're going to, you're going to run into people, you're going to talk to I, people. I think he didn't f just run into him. I think it was a schedule. No, I know, but I he's, a, well, a his, scheduled the, meeting because, and certainly in. But he said, he claims that he, they told the FCDO it was happening. So in our system, and uh, you would have felt this, like if I'd been a, a junior minister at COP and I scheduled a meeting with Erdogan and I was like, well, I just bumped into him. You'd be like, what the F are you doing? Get back in your box. You do not get to have a meeting with Erdogan. Who on earth do you think you are? I think you might be right. <laughs> yes, you might. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it. Before. But I guess it's the fact that Humza Yusuf, he is the, the leader of Scotland and of a different politics to the UK I'm, I'm sure if they'd arranged it properly, they would have been, wouldn't have been prepared to staff it. Yeah. I was surprised that David Cameron went quite yeah. so heavy in his yeah. the penning of his letter. Hey-ho, that's it, Rory, for this week. Back tomorrow with Question Time. Looking forward to it very much. Thank you. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.